Welcome to another episode of In A Minute with Evan Lovett, coming to you live from the IM Studios in the heart of Los Angeles. This is another episode brought to you by our friends at Cerritos Auto Square. We have a very special guest today, Christopher or Chris Darden, whichever you prefer. You may know Mr. Darden from his time as co-prosecutor in the O.J. Simpson case, one of the most explosive trials in the history of the United States. But Mr. Darden also worked in the L.A. County District Attorney's Office for 15 years. He was a commentator for Court TV, CNBC, CNN, and he became a law professor at Southwestern University, as well as an author. Chris is now running for a seat on the Los Angeles County Superior Court judge this coming election, so we're going to dig into that. But in short, Chris Darden is inextricably linked to the modern history of Los Angeles, and we're going to discuss all of that. From his origin story to his future outlook. All right, y'all. Let's get into it. Chris, I want to thank you very much for making the time to be here and joining us in the IM studios. My pleasure. Thank you for having me. I'm glad to be here. Well, listen. I like to start with your origin story. Now, as many people, dare I say most people in Los Angeles are, you're a transplant. You come from Richmond, is that correct? Richmond, California. Richmond, California, I come from the rich. I wanna know about Richmond, It's it's a place. Now, I had spent a lot of time in Northern California, Davis, Berkeley, Oakland, San Francisco, but not as familiar with Richmond. Tell me about Richmond. Well, Richmond's on the east side of the bay, just up the freeway from uh, Berkeley, which is just up the freeway from Oakland. It's a a working class town. Um, It's uh, diverse. It's always been, well, not always, but it's been diverse for, you know, for the last, for last decades or so. Yeah, the modern uh, era. Yeah, 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 you know, and it's, you know, it's not one of these rich cities that you see. Pun intended. It's it's a, uh, you know, it's you know, people are making a hard living in uh, in Richmond. Back in the day, Richmond uh, uh, was a place where uh, shipping came in. Interesting, and, very and important. To throughout the uh, and throughout World War Two, they built they built ships there, and that drove the economy. and And like a lot of towns, uh, you know, Richmond's economy has suffered as you know, businesses and the economy itself has changed. So when you meet someone and they say, well, I'm from Richmond, you shake their hand and say, good job. Wow. Because, you know, okay. it's, it's tough growing up there for a lot of kids. Now, speaking of a lot of kids, I understand you have eight siblings or you're one of eight. Is that correct? I am one of eight. Wow. Um, now, uh, now one of five. Okay. Um, okay. But um, one of eight. My mother, by the time she was 30, had eight kids, uh, five daughters, uh, three sons. I think she liked the daughters better. <laughs> and I tell her that all the time. That's fair. Hey, I don't and blame that, her. You know. Know. <laughs> hey, you know, we know boys and girls. No. Yeah, yeah. And uh, yeah, so I'm the middle son. And okay. you know, last uh, uh, Christmas Eve 2022, 20, uh, I lost my uh, younger brother. Oh. I lost my older brother. Uh, right after the uh, Simpson case, uh, during the trial, he was in the uh, last stages of uh, of an AIDS-related illness and, and passed away in November it's of terrible. that year. It's terrible. I had an uncle that passed away from AIDS in uh, 1989, and at the time I was 10, so I remember that. Not really knowing what that was, but just seeing the ravages of that, and that's extremely difficult. It is. It, it is. So... 
as a kid, let me ask you this, growing up in Richmond, did you have dreams, aspirations? You know, you of course you did, but you couldn't envision exactly what you'd be doing now, running for a judge. But what were your dreams and aspirations growing up? Well, you know, they, you know, they changed um, over time. You know, I'm growing up in the late 60s. Okay. And so in the third grade, I think I'm in the third grade when uh, John F. Kennedy is assassinated. And I'm 12 years old when Martin Luther King is assassinated and, and uh, Robert Kennedy is assassinated and Medgar Evers has been assassinated. And there's a war going on in Vietnam and I'm watching my big brother's uh, uh, schoolmates return from Vietnam, uh, suffering from PTSD, oh, uh, mental illness, or from some tragic uh, uh, injury, disabling injury. And, and of course, America is, is changing. America uh, is, is changing. Perhaps the most influential time in American history. I always think of that because my parents are, are uh, hippies and children of the 60s. Right. And when I was growing up, I was like, I wish I would have grown up in that era because there's <laughs> so much action and, and such an impact on America. But you were actually there. so Yeah, yeah. I mean, I'm actually growing up there and, uh, and watching all of this, all of this chaos and trying to figure out, trying to navigate my way through all of that. Because, you know, back then when I was a kid, when somebody said, hey, on Friday, California is going to fall into the ocean, you know, we believed it. Right. 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 You know, 12 o'clock dude, we were like, oh, my God. <laughs> what? You know, I can't swim because you're growing up black in Richmond in 19, you know, 66. Yeah. You can't, you know, you can't go down to the uh, city uh, swimming pool and swim, wow. right. you know, because of, you know, race. But, you know, I'm, I'm thinking, damn, how am I going to uh, make it, you know, once well, we're in the ocean? Well, let me ask you, how did that affect you? Because Oakland, at the time, if I, I have it correctly, was an epicenter of, of the movement, of, yeah. if not Black Panthers yes. and that entire yes. uh, ethos yes. in America. So did that sort of trickle down to you with your older brother and, and things of that nature? Like you know, I, you know what, I have an old picture when I was 15 years old and, I'm, and I, I have on a black beret, I'm wearing a black beret, uh, um, glasses, sunglasses, and, I, and an army fatigue jacket with a, a Black Panther pin wow. you know, on the lapel. Um, we hear a lot about Black Panthers and uh, from that era, um, but you know, the Black Panthers were the first uh, folks to try to feed, you know, hungry kids in, you know, in the cities and in urban areas. Uh, not that I'm defending Black Panthers, but right. as yeah. a kid, you know, this is one I'm who I want to be like in a sense because these are strong Black men who are resisting. Uh, an overreaching government, yeah, and who uh, who are who are dedicated to the preservation and protection of, of my community and me, especially with the at the time recent history of the United States government and race relations and things of that nature. Because you look at the fifties and forties, and even in Los Angeles, which is one of the most diverse and accordingly celebrated cities, it was racism. I sure. mean, that's exactly what it was, sure. and that was sure. going on. So yeah. you're living that during your most um, influenced, influential years at that point. Right. So did you have goals? What, what At that point, what were you thinking you wanted to be when you grew up? I mean, I, I, I wasn't really sure. I'll tell you. You know, the ninth grade, I go to high school, and the first semester uh, in the ninth grade, you know, you have six classes. I got um, 
three A's and three F's. Okay. <laughs> okay. So I got three A's and three F's, and you can only flunk three classes throughout your high school career. Uh, and, and if you flunk four, and you can't graduate. So I just flunked my first three uh, right out. Right out. Was it page. effort? Was it caring? What, what? I, I think it was confusion. I think it was confusion. You know, the world was a ball of confusion. And, and you know, now I'm 14, uh, rather 15 years old, you know, in, in the midst of puberty. And, and everything in my life and around me is just um, unsettled. Yeah, yeah. Unsettled. And, and it was hard, you know, to, to, to decide what do you want to be. Oh, I decided that I wanted to be a lawyer. Okay. I didn't know any lawyers. Had never met a lawyer. Okay. Um, had seen pictures of lawyers and lawyers, you know, in movies. But I decided I wanted to be a lawyer. And I wanted to be a lawyer because it was lawyers, uh, from my perspective, who were making a huge uh, impact and inroad in terms of civil rights. Yeah. Um, you yeah. know, it was the Thurgood Marshalls. It was the NAACP. And it was also those lawyers in Oakland and San Francisco who defended uh, black militants. Yeah. You know, these lawyers stood up to power. Uh, these lawyers uh, and, and insisted um, uh, that the rule of law be honored. And I admired uh, their bravery and their commitment uh, to the rule of law. And um, I wanted to be like them. Did you know at that point what it would take dedication career path things like that or was it sort of like look because i i wanted to be a baseball player right not, not quite <laughs> as heroic but i was like i gotta work hard and these are the steps that i need to follow and stuff like that i mean did it resonate with you that you're like all right i'm gonna need to go to university i'm gonna need to go get my jd i gotta pass the bar all that mm -hmm. stuff or was it this sort of pie in the sky kind of aspiration at that point you know, it, it was a it was a pie in the sky aspiration. But I met uh, I met with uh, my government teacher, my history teacher, one day, and his name was John Joya. Love and that. Love teachers. Underrated. Underappreciated. Yeah. Yep. And I and I told him of my dream, and it just so happened that he had attended law school at Tulane. He had a, a severe uh, a sight, a visual, a vision disability. He was teaching high school, and he said, "Look, if you will." do some of the things that I ask you to do, I will help you go to law school. And he didn't help me with money, um, but when he saw me with the wrong girl, he pulled me aside and said, I should stay away from that girl. But he gave me things uh, to read, and he spent time with me talking about the law, and, uh, and he inspired me. Now, his son eventually became a member of the Board of Supervisors in Contra Costa County. Um, and may still be, um, but uh, Mr. Joya, yeah. you know, this, you know, damn near blind white guy out of Tulane yeah. um, helped show me the way. That's awesome. I'm glad that you remember that. My wife's sister is a teacher, but all the way up, you know, again, teachers need to be more rewarded. Now, let me ask you, I know you ended up going to San Jose State. Yeah. And you competed in track and field there. Yes. Did you yes. compete in track and field in high school as well? I, I did. I, I don't want to spend too much time, but look, I'm a sports guy. I want to mm. know. I want to know how'd you get into track? What events were mm. you doing? How did that? How did that turn out? Well, I got into track because my big brother Michael was in the track, and uh, my brother Michael Darden um, was a highly regarded 100-yard uh, sprinter. Okay, yards. We're talking yards, yeah. baby. 
<laughs> different era. There we go. Right, right, right. And and uh, you know, and he was fast, and they, he had a nickname. They called him Spider. And since Spider was in the track, I got in the track. Wait, why Spider? I I, I got to know that. Well, you know, because he was skinny, and he he, was, he had long legs and Absolutely. long arms, cool. and yeah. Okay. And, and he was fast. And I'll tell you about my brother Michael. One day at Kennedy High School, where we went to high school. He ran the 100-yard dash, and he broke 10 seconds, which was pretty extraordinary. Yeah. And it was in all the papers. It was in all the papers. It's a big deal. It's a big deal. And then a few days later, they went back, and they realized that they had uh, not marked the track correctly. And, in fact, the race was not 100 yards, but was 90. Ooh. <laughs> right? Okay. Um which for him, you know, was a huge source of embarrassment. Um, not his fault, though. Not but his yeah, fault. Yeah, yeah. Not his fault. But, um, you know, I always wanted to vindicate him, yeah. vindicate my big brother, because he sort of spiraled uh, away from us, oh, wow. you know, after that. Um, uh, he was really affected and impacted um, by what happened on the track that day. But, you know, as, as far as, as I'm concerned, as far as my track career, you know, I was decent. You know, I was, man, you know, man. I mean, you know, you could, you could give me, you know, put me on the second leg on a, on a, on a four by uh, 400 meter relay, you yeah. know, and I, you know. You I, compete. You know, I, you I, compete. I, I, I compete. I, I, you know, I'd make up some ground. You know what I mean? Yeah. And, uh, you know, and I had some glorious races. Yeah. Okay. Back then in Kennedy High School, very proud of my track career at JFK. And my kids, you know, they talk smack, you know. <laughs> Daddy, we just can't see you running oh, no. to the refrigerator, you know, refrigerator. Ooh. But let me tell you, back then, you know, I was a hog. Dude, I was a hog. You know, my son runs track mm -hmm. and uh, he's fast, fast kid. Um, but so it's up to, and I remember going to the 84 Olympics back in LA with my dad. And that mm -hmm. was one of the, premier memories of my lifetime. So I've always been sort of this track and field, um, I'm not gonna say a wonk, but somebody who pays attention even yeah. in you know, yeah. non-Olympic years, but it's really one of the most demanding and physically taxing sports that somebody can do. And I wanna know, was that discipline or that demand anything that sort of laid a foundation for you academically and professionally from that point forward? Well, you know what? When you run track and when you get in get in the blocks and, you know, and I ran the full 40 and the 400 Ooh. meters later, Ooh. you know, it's an Tough individual events. sport. Yeah. Okay. Like swimming, like boxing. Mm -hmm. And, you know, it's you against the universe. And, um, and you learn to, to rely on yourself to depend on yourself you know that it's up to you to be prepared yeah to train and to be ready when it's your time and um and and so it's a it's it's one teaching moment after another it it builds a certain kind of character and it builds uh, within you i think a certain kind of courage yeah and discipline and discipline that's a and then so you went to san jose state yeah and then eventually you see Hastings right. for law school, correct? Yes, San Francisco. What do you think? What, what had you ventured out to that point? And again, those are those are grander mm. Bay Area areas. But really briefly, what were those like? Any distinctive memories? Anything super impactful from San Jose or Hastings? 
Well, you know what the thing about going to law school, you know, and having been in public school uh, my whole life was to go to Hastings that first day and, and people walking around wearing the T-shirts from the colleges <laughs> they went to, right? So some guy walks by and went to Harvard and some, some, some girl walks by and she went to Yale and, and this and that, and, you know, and I, you know, I'm like, you know, I'm a Spartan, not a Michigan State Spartan, right? <laughs> right, right. I'm, I'm a San Jose State Spartan. So, you know, I sort of kind of hung out with the, with the kids that went to uh, Sac State, at, you know, Fresno State, because these other kids were, these other students were a whole nother, we thought, class yeah. of class yeah. of people. But at Hastings in 1977, when I went, and Hastings is a University of California law school, um, they had uh, a reputation for flunking out half the Ooh. half of the uh, minority students in the first class in the first year, so um, you always felt threatened. Right. And right. and I will say that you know we all always felt unwanted and unappreciated. So you know again uh, there, like in other places in our lives as young as young black students, um, you know, it's us against the universe. Yeah. You know, uh, you know, once again, um, you know, what I felt and learned in track and field and, and what I learned uh, from spending a lunch hour with Mr. Joya, you know, what you, what you learn and gather from being one of eight children yeah. you know, in a household where neither mama nor daddy finished high school or went to college. You know, there's no professional, uh, you know, paycheck, professional's paycheck coming into the household. You know, you learn to fend for yourself and you learn to fight. You learn to fight. Wow. Unwanted and unappreciated. That's really um, kind of a resonant statement, especially because, you know, you figure these law schools in a University of California with with that esteem and that reputation but again, this is the 1970s and, you know, civil rights and equality. Sure, there had been progress, but it still isn't what it is now. And even today, it isn't what it probably should be. And you're experiencing this firsthand. Um, was it a unifying sort of feeling with, with other people, with other black students at, at Hastings? I mean, was it something that were you guys could feed off of each other and use that as fuel to kind of help each other and, and to to sort of develop not just academically, but springboard professionally as well. Yeah, yeah, it was a unifying experience. You know, if you walked into the cafeteria at Hastings, you could look at the various tables. And over here would be the black students at this table. And at another would be the Latino students. And then you might see, you know, some of the Chinese American students and the Japanese American students. And you might see some others, whatever the others might be. Yeah. And then you would see, uh, you know, some of the white students, or many of the white students at, at various tables as well. You know, um, we all had our own nation. <laughs> we were all, we were all, we were all segregated, and maybe it was self-segregation segre in a way and in a sense. But what what it really was was us um, creating a protective barrier. Protective barrier, you know. That's a good, that's a good so, um, to put it. you know, we were feeding off each other, relying on each other, uh, relying on each other's notes, um, studying with each other. Um, you know, you're you're an island surrounded. How big was the black community at Hastings? Well, um, 
the first year class every year consisted of 125 students. And uh, I would suppose there might be uh, 20 black students uh, entering the first year class. Uh, but they're flunking out half of them. But, but they're said, flunking right? out half right. of them. Yeah. And if you make it uh, out of the first year, you, you still may not make it past the second year because the way they, they, they put, you know, uh, students on probation and the like was, um, you know, well, I didn't pass a class in the first year. Well, we're going to let you go into the second year, but you're going to have to take that class oh. that you flunked in the first year over. And at Hastings in the 70s, there were three classes, contracts, torts, civil procedure. These were one-year classes, no midterms, yeah. one final. If that's not terrifying enough, oh. okay, if that's not terrifying oh. enough, dig this. Come on. It, it, the grading was numerical. The grading was numerical. So if you got a 60, yeah. okay, no matter what you got in the other class, it was going to drag your GPA right into <laughs> probationary status so so it's cumulative in that regard oh, oh yeah oh yeah it, it, it was awful meanwhile over at berkeley across the bay I, you know i think they're giving like handshakes and <laughs> you know and uh you know snowball cupcakes hosted snowball cupcakes for grades but we're over here fighting numbers man fighting numbers and you and you're looking at that thing and that that average, you know, when that report card comes, if you don't hit 68, if you hit 68, you you know, you're in a bad place. But if you don't hit that 68, you ain't going to make it to the next year, right? So, you know, we should be reaching for 100. Yeah, of course. But instead, we're trying to just reach beyond 68 no, because the yeah. environment is so hostile. Oh, man. You know? I'm, I'm just trying to make it. I'm just trying to, to get, you know, to the next level. But did that sort of train you or, or I don't want to use the word inspire, but it, again, laid a foundation where if you're finding that hard already in law school, then when your professional career comes and some of the challenges specifically that you ended up facing, that had to be something that you could kind of build off of maybe or, or yeah, look back You on. know, to be isolated. Yeah. To be uh, maligned. Yeah to be disrespected, unwanted, unappreciated, to be um, pigeonholed, to be forced in a position where um, it's you against the universe. Yeah. Been there and done that. I had already, they'd already made me afraid back in 1974. Wow. I, you know, I, I, I'd already faced all of the, um, you know all the all the, all of the barriers and, and and all of the impediments, and you know already you know I've already endured poverty. I already endured not having what I wanted to eat, or, or uh, I had already uh, lived in my car from some t for some time wow. in college. I had already wow. lost my girlfriend. I had already you know uh, done all of this stuff and been through all of this, and um, you know and in the background. You know, in the background, you know, there's mom and daddy still. Yeah. But, you know, my mother and father taught me to be able to stand up. Um, and they taught me that sometimes I'm going to get knocked to my knees. Yeah. And they taught me to stand up. So when I, when I go through things, uh, uh, some of the things that I've gone through as a lawyer, um, you know, it's familiar ground. Not a happy time. 
Yeah. You know, because I, I want to be loved like everybody wants to be loved. Of course. Right? Yeah. And I, I want to, uh, you know, my, my legacy um, uh, as a lawyer, I, I want it to be uh, praised and looked upon in a positive way. Yes. And, uh, um, you know, that may or may not happen, but let me tell you something. I am proud of me. And one of the main reasons I'm proud of me is because my children are proud of me. Yes. You know, that's the goal, man. Right. The legacy. That's the, the true Dardens, legacy. The baby yeah. Dardens, you know, they get How it. many children do you have? I got, I, five, I got five kids. Wow. Okay. And, okay. Uh, Good. and um, you know, and let me tell you, um, man, they, my kids are so bright, you know, USC grad, UCLA grad, yes. Pomona College uh, grad, about to have a, uh, a USF, a University of San Francisco grad and an Arizona State Ooh. Law School grad, you know, I mean, uh, and, uh, you know, I mean, we've been putting it down Good uh, here in Los Angeles, Good. you know what I'm saying? And it's like if ever, anybody ever says, well, what was your contribution to the community, to the city? Look at these kids. Yes. Look at these kids. And they are so sharp and so committed and uh, just so aware, um, you know, of everything. Um, um, you know, that is my primary contribution, number one contribution to the world. I have to give a special shout out to Tiffany. Uh, I've been communicating with Tiffany. You're, well, how many daughters? Do you have? I how have many? three daughters. Three daughters, two sons. One of your daughters, and she is absolutely proud, and she's really been pushing this forward. And, and honestly, she is a great you know, representation of, of the legacy that you have in Los Angeles. And segueing that, so you, you finish at Hastings, you pass the bar, 1980, you come to Los Angeles. Yeah. National yeah. Labor Relations Board. Was yeah. that your first time in Los Angeles, I gotta ask? I believe I came to Los Angeles one time before, I think my father's sister had come from East Texas, and so we drove all night uh, mm -hmm. to Los Angeles in a 1968, uh, Oldsmobile, uh, <laughs> with no seat belts, yo. Oh, of course, uh, okay. yeah, of course. And, uh, seat belts. And, I was sitting in the front seat. My parents have pictures of me sitting in the front seat with no seat belts at like three years old. Yeah, you yeah. Know, yeah, you hit a hard left, hard left, a hard right, and you just slide <laughs> down, the, down those those bench seats, right? So you know, I, I, I'm up in I'm up in the Bay Area. And it's 1980, and in 1980 in the Bay Area and, and all around the country and all around the world, we were in a deep recession. Mortgage interest rates yeah. around that time were 15%. Oh, I could not get a job coming out of law school, and I'd applied for the National Labor Relations Board in San Francisco and Oakland and up there. Why the National Labor Relations Board, by the way? You know what? Labor, civil rights, unions. Yeah. Um, Collectively, this is America. Yeah, this is America, and and all of these things were so critically important to me and my community. You know, I, you know, my old man was. Well, uh, I have a memory of my old man one day. I'm playing in the I'm playing in the driveway with a couple of friends. I must be seven, eight years old. The garbage truck pulls up. The garbage man gets off the back of the truck carrying a big silver can. Yo. And back then, you know, they grabbed that silver can, they'd walk down the side of your house to your backyard, empty your trash into that silver can and carry that silver can back to the truck and dump the trash in the truck. And I'm sitting there and um, the man gets off and I look up and I'm like, I look back down and then I'm like, the hell? And I turn to look 
toward the backyard and the man coming out of the yard with the trash is my father. Go on. It's my father. Yeah. And and I asked my mother, what's daddy doing? Being a garbage trash. man. Trash, yeah, yeah. And she says he's he working, he has to work two jobs. He's working a night job and he's working a day job. Right. He's working a night job and he's working a day job. And, um, you know, uh, unionizing garbage men in the 60s, yeah. you know, in the 70s, in uh, the 50s, you know, was obviously a, a huge deal. But, um, you know, you talk about setting an example. I mean, that had to be the most back-breaking way to make a living imaginable. Talk about thankless. And, and, yeah, and yeah. And, and, and back then, they were they were work. trying to unionize and, and organize. And, you know, and as the years went on, my father became members of, of various unions. Uh, he was a welder and, and, and some other things. He worked with his hands. But, you know, um, unions made America great, helped make America great created a middle class, helped uh, my father, helped me um, to be the man that I am. And, uh, um, you know, uh, the National Labor Relations Board, which conducts union elections, certifies union elections, ensures that employers don't interfere with the employees' uh, right to organize yeah. and seek union representation. You know, that's right up my alley. You know, that's... You know, these are co- this is consistent with my politics, and so yeah, uh, being a, 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 a labor lawyer with the NLRB, um, you know, was 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 the kind of lawyer that I wanted to be. You know, working, supporting average families, average people, you know, average Joe, and uh, and I tried to get a job with the NLRB in the Bay Area. There were none. Finally, somebody called and said, "Look, we have an opening in Los Angeles." Right. And then what, what was your reaction? Were you like, let's go? Or were you like, I don't know, L.A.? What was your first thought? First of all, I don't know L.A. I don't really know anybody in L.A. Uh, a, a, a friend I went to law school with, had a, uh, she had a friend in L.A. And she said, I'll introduce you to her and maybe she can help you transition to L.A. And here's the deal. You know, it's 1980. <laughs> no internet, no resources to internet. Hey, it's 1980. And like... Uh, you know, and I'm like, well, what does the job pay? And they said, well, I think I was a GS nine, and I think it pays something like fifteen thousand seven hundred or something. Which, you know, I I, I can't do the the the, the, <laughs> do the math equation at the time, but I'm yeah. sure that wasn't a ton ton. It, w- it wasn't a ton of money, even for for my Lubrook, but but you know, I am like, I gotta work, I gotta you know, so I I came to L.A. and. Wow. Uh, and uh, immediately found out that I could not uh, live on $15,700, at least not the way I wanted to live. Right. But I, I took an apartment on 3rd in Vermont. I was just going to ask. Okay, so and, that was uh, your first yeah, like, and it was, residence in Los yeah, Angeles. 3rd in Vermont. And let me tell you, that place had more roaches than I had ever seen in my whole life. And and the price I was paying for it at the time, I thought was you know a lot of money. I quickly realized I, it was I was overpriced or, or paying too much rent, and uh, um, but you know that's how I started now. Like me and those roaches. What was the first impression outside of the roaches for Los Angeles? For you of Los Angeles. After I was here a couple of days, uh, I needed to go to the uh, grocery store for some reason uh, after work one night, and it was dark. It was winter, and I went to the grocery store. 
and it might have been a boys market, I think. Um, Classic. But I went, and I, and I walked into this huge grocery store. I'd never seen a grocery store this big. Yes, the and home I, of the supermarket, by the way. Los Angeles has yeah. Vaughn's, Ralph's, nowadays Gelson's. All these come from Los Angeles. Trader Joe's, they all come from Los Angeles. Yeah. Very interesting. But go on, and, home you know, of the supermarket. And I walk into this huge supermarket, and it's full of people. And I'm like, what? At this time of the <laughs> evening. And, and, and the thing is, it's full of some of every kind of people. Yeah. It was yes. full of some of every kind of people, Good. every kind of language you could imagine. I'm hearing people, hearing people speak, and I'm standing there looking into this just vast supermarket with all these people, and 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 I'm and and, and I'm witnessing, you know, for the first time, all of these cultures, you know, um, and uh, um, I loved it. Yes, I loved it. I mean. The cultural diversity in this city, yeah, man, you know this. This is special. People say, "Well, I want to, I want to move to uh, Texas. I want to move somewhere else, or whatever, whatever." I don't know how you how you leave the culture here. I mean, the food, yes. the the you know the neighborhoods, the architecture, the weather. Um, hey, the women. Yeah, right, right off the bat, right, you know. And and uh, you know and I fell I fell in love with L.A. and especially as a twenty something I mean oh, come yeah, on hey, hey, you know what I mean hey, you know time. you know uh, you know twenty nine inch waist yo oh, oh. <laughs> had a little had a little ripple here <laughs> a little four pack there you go <laughs> okay so you loved Los Angeles right oh, off the bat the I love diversity Los the culture that's awesome now with the LA so you left the National Labor Relations Board after a short time right to right, work right. for the LA County District Attorney what yeah. happened what opportunity opened up how'd that work well you know I'm making 15,700 oh right. working for the feds and the and the NLRB Ooh. and I just could not I just couldn't I couldn't survive on that it became an, an issue uh, of survival and I looked in the legal newspaper and they were advertising grade 1 brand new uh, wet behind the ear deputy DAs with a starting salary. Okay, yeah. you're gonna um, a boatload of money, twenty five thousand eight hundred, bro. Wow, twenty five thousand eight hundred. You're rich. You know, <laughs> right? You know, I mean, you know, uh, you know, no, no more, shoot, no more. That's that's like a seventy percent increase, though, hey, if you hey, look at those numbers. Yeah. Hey, hey, you know, no more rice and hot links yeah. for dinner. I could, I could buy some veggies. Okay. You know, okay. With, that, with that rice and those those leaves. make that twenty nine inch waist, maybe thirty, thirty one, thirty. Yep, yeah, <clears throat> blow up, and uh, you know, and I never dreamed about being a prosecutor, but at the time, um, it was just what I, I needed to do. I, I needed uh, more money, and so I, I I applied and I joined the, the LADA's office. Ooh, that's interesting. Now. Correct me if I'm wrong. You were in Huntington Park initially. Initially in Huntington Park and Southgate. Did you still live? You kept your place at, at Third in Vermont, though. I, I kept my place at Third in Vermont for okay. some months. Okay. Yeah. So Huntington Park, then Beverly Hills. Yeah. Then I was assigned to the Beverly Hills courthouse. How did that work? Was that sort of your first exposure to that part of L.A.? And for me, yes. Yes. I, I always say that here at In a Minute with Evan Lovett in L.A. in a Minute, there's the Los Angeles that's Santa Monica, Hollywood, and Beverly Hills. And then there's the real Los Angeles, right? Yeah, that's a difference. So, yeah. So you're coming from Third of Vermont, Huntington Park. Now you're in Beverly Hills. And granted, you're a prosecutor, but you're starting to see some Beverly Hills yeah, culture, yeah. if you will. Oh, yeah. You, you know, Rodeo Drive is three yeah. blocks from the courthouse. The yeah. first thing I realized 
working in the Beverly Hills Courthouse as a grade two deputy DA was that I could not afford to eat lunch in Beverly Hills. Not every day, not every day. And let me tell you, lunch was great. Um, but you know you could not uh, you know venture out onto those streets in Beverly Hills and, and buy lunch every day. Even to this day, I mean, yeah. especially back to twenty five thousand. Okay, and then you get to the criminal courts building, yes. right? They move you over there. Yes. Now, was that pivotal, or are we still just are you just adapting with your career, just kind of growing, evolving at that point? Well, I mean, it, it's pivotal for me because I had spent a long time in misdemeanors and I tried a lot of cases. And Beverly Hills, no matter what the charge, everybody had a Beverly Hills defense lawyer and everybody went to trial. So I'm just trying trial after trial after trial. And after a while, I got, you know, a little burnt out on that, a little frustrated. I, I wanted, you know, you know, I wanted some meat, you know. Uh, no misdemeanors. I wanted some murders, and I wanted you know some some. some Where does real that hunger come cases. from? How does that, how does that happen? Tell me in the in the mind of an attorney, a successful mm. driven attorney. Like, what does that mean? You go home and you're like, I'm I'm tired of like prosecuting people for traffic tickets or whatever yeah, it was, yeah, right? Yeah, yeah. And then so how does that happen? And what do you do? professionally to kind of pursue that well you want to be successful in your career yeah and the way we measured success in the DA's office was based on the trials the kind of trials you tried and the number okay you know I could not promote um, solely on the basis of misdemeanor trials uh, you know every year or so you know we write this memo um, supporting a promotions or an increase in step or a grade and you have to justify it and, and one of the major ways uh, it's justified is by explaining the number of jury trials and the nature of those trials the kinds of trials um, that's how success was measured wow. you know and of course you got to say the guy got convicted you know you don't really talk about the yeah, ones you lost uh, right but right. Uh, you know so I, I needed some some heavier cases if I was going to uh, you know, promote. How do you get to that? Uh, from that point within the uh, district attorney's office, do you lobby for them? Do you base it on the strength of your mm -hmm. record up to mm -hmm. that point? Yeah. Is it that year-end memo that kind of you're hoping the next year you're getting more serious? You know, it's all of that and the, and the hope that, you know, they hire some other people who are starting, you know, as brand new baby cake DAs and uh, they need to be in misdemeanors and it's creating, you know, an opportunity for me yeah. uh, to move up. So I move up to felonies and and my head deputy right. is, is Gil Garcetti. So Interesting. Okay. okay. So, yeah. What so, year is this? Do you remember? Uh, it's probably 1983. Maybe, okay. Okay. In the eighty-two. Was he a big deal yet at this point? I, I, I remember. I caught him at the end. Was he? Well, he was a legend in the office. Okay. Bill okay. Garcetti was a legend in the office, and you know, you become a legend in the office by trying cases. Of course. Um, so, uh, so you know, I get assigned to uh, to his unit, and uh, and it's a good unit. You know, one of my first uh, immediate supervisors in felony trials is a guy named Phil Halpin, who. Um, um, went on uh, to try Richard Ramirez. Wow. And before that, many, many years before, was involved in the Onionfield case. What which, is the Onionfield case? It's a, it's, a, it's a very old case. Los Angeles, where two police officers were murdered. Suspect got the drop on them, ordered them to give up their weapons. They gave them up, and, and they were killed. 
And wow. that's why no cop's going to give up his or her weapon. In an onion their field? Weapon By the way, is that yeah. what it comes to? Yeah. Oh. So, you know, Truman Capote wrote a book about it. So, oh, you know, my. the old heads in the law. I need to check that. LA, I need to check that. about you know, onion field and, and stuff like that. But Phil Halpin was just such an excellent, excellent um, trial attorney. Oh, my God. Um, passed away some years ago. But so, so I'm with Garcetti. I'm with Phil Halpin, and and I'm sitting here watching, you know, all the great prosecutions of the 80s and the 90s, uh, you know, leading up to O.J. Simpson. But you know, um, you know, you name it, you know, I'm there. I'm, you know, I'm like Forrest Gump. You know, verdicts are coming in. I'm standing in the hallway behind the clerk's desk. I'm sitting yes. in the courtroom watching. Right. You know, not just the best prosecutors, but the best lawyers LA has to and you're always learning you're watching you're observing you're learning and that's the important thing yeah yeah I mean you know I could sit and I could watch I could watch the cross-examination let's say of a witness and later on in the middle of the night I could be lying there awake and in my mind I'm putting together the formula you know because a lot of what you do in the courtroom in my mind you know there's kind of a formula to it you know there's this issue and i want to i want to trap this witness in this particular issue i need to figure out how i'm going to build that box you know what i mean yeah. and so i'm watching these lawyers build those boxes set those traps um and you know drag out of the witness the information or evidence that they really really need so yeah i'm learning i'm learning all the time from defense lawyers from prosecutors and i'm learning from good judges at the same time interesting now i never i went to a long government magnet by the way and i was like this is not for me i have friends this day that became attorneys some of them hate their lives some of them enjoy it and have had prosperous mm-hmm. careers i know mm-hmm. it's difficult demanding mm-hmm. but i never consider from the judge's perspective and trust me we're, we're going to address that but so you're learning from the judges so the judges just the way they administer the case, the way they're observing. What what is it that, that you're learning from well, a judge? Is your well, I'm learning. Judge. I'm learning how the judge controls the courtroom. Yeah, I'm I'm learning uh, what the judge's limitations are, so that when I come to that courtroom, yeah, I know how to try a case in front of that judge. I'm learning uh, of the judge's likes and dislikes. You know, not just whether or not you should stand to address the court or or, or stand at the podium, uh, et cetera, et cetera, but you know, I'm, I'm, I'm learning from not only what the judge is saying, but from the judge's demeanor as well, what the judge likes and doesn't like. And what I found yeah. was that one thing a lot of judges like are skilled lawyers. Judges love it when lawyers come in and can examine witnesses or present evidence uh, without drawing a ton of objections. Right. You know, when it's right. carefully plotted and planned and done in accordance, uh, you know, with the rules. Um, you know, one of the greatest compliments a federal prosecutor once said to me uh, a few years ago, he said to me, Mr. Darden, you know, I was so thrilled to, to watch you examine this witness. And, and the most thrilling part of it was that I never, I was never in position to have to uh, levy an objection. I didn't like your That's questions. Awesome. <laughs> I didn't That's like awesome. them. But, you know, but you constructed your questions in a way that even I found them unobjectionable. Mastering your craft. That's right it. That's there. Wh- so judges reflect, I mean, judges respect that. Sure, well. sure they do. Okay. And now look, you're in your 20s now, turning into your 30s at this point. I got to ask, 
how was your relationship with the city of Los Angeles evolving during this? Your career is evolving, but your relationship with the city of LA at this point, because well, you're now you're you're living here. You're a resident. You are, as they say, an Angelino. How how was that? I'm all of that, and I'm a hot shot uh, prosecutor <laughs> in the DA's office, baby. Let me tell you something. The, the suits were fitted. I was fitted. Yeah. May the record reflect that I was fitted. Yes, perfect, and, uh, perfect. And now in 1988 or so, I move into the Special Investigations Division, okay. which is the division that investigates officer-involved shootings and uh, police misconduct. Whew. And uh, we have a rollout program in, in our unit. So if there is an officer-involved shooting and there's a hit, um, we roll out a DA investigator and a deputy DA. How, how'd they move you over to the special investigation? Division? I, how does I that applied. Work? I okay. applied. You wanted to do that? I wanted to Why? do that. Why? Um, because A, it sounded exciting. Yeah, it does. B, I knew it was a clear path to promotion. Wow. Uh, and it was something different. Because, you know, not only are we doing, you know, officer-involved shootings, uh, we're oh, doing in-custody deaths, we're doing political corruption, and we are conducting investigations in front of the grand jury. Now, were you concerned about maybe being on the wrong side of that and making some enemies? Is that is that a concern at that point? No. No. Uh, no. no, it wasn't. And I'm never concerned about m making enemies, even even today, um, you know, a lot of folks and a lot of police officers and a lot of prosecutors view the deputy district attorney as an extension of the police department. Okay. I mean, okay. prosecutors are certainly an extension uh, of law enforcement. But, you know, I believe in good law enforcement. Yeah. And I had many, many friends who were police officers back then who were good cops, good deputies. Um, and I didn't mind rooting out the bad ones. Um, and I and they didn't mind my rooting out the bad ones either. Wow. So, you know, so I was in a good place with that. People complain in these days about officer-involved shootings, bad shootings. Uh, you know, I, I, I was complaining about them in 1988. In 1988. And honestly, I guess if you're on the side of honesty and the side of justice, then, you know, you can sleep at night and know that you're pursuing the right Sure. Path sure, on that. Sure, sure. And I'm not pursuing cops because I don't like cops. Yeah. I'm, I'm pursuing cops because those cops broke the law. Right. And, and in doing this, and even before that, you know, I, I, I spent some time in the hardcore gang unit. Yeah. Uh, you know, prosecuting gang members. And this in the 80s. This yeah, is this, during the, this is the in heyday, the if you will. Yeah. 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 And, and both times, in, in both assignments, I'm protecting my community. That's interesting. That's a good way to look at it. So in the Special Investigation Division, this is when you first encountered Johnny Cochran. Is that correct? Correct. And now I've seen him described as your mentor. Is that accurate? Well, let me say this. I'd seen Johnny before, but this is when I encountered Johnny on a more one-to-one, one-on-one uh, um, level. Um, I admired Johnny Cochran greatly. Number one, Johnny Cochran had built... Uh, a black law firm right. consisting primarily of black lawyers and, and was successful at it. And that right there, uh, something I tip my hat yeah, it's awesome. uh, to. And, and there are others, of course, today uh, who have accomplished the same thing. I mean, that's a, that's a great feat. There just aren't very many black lawyers, uh, not just in the country, but certainly in, in California. And um, he was a very good trial lawyer. Yeah. And he had a very good reputation. And um, and Johnny has swag. 
right? Yes. Johnny has what? You know, Johnny, Johnny, you know, Johnny walked, Johnny, Johnny's feet didn't really touch the carpet. Um, You know, Johnny, you know, Johnny was cool. And, uh, and of course, he had uh, handled a case called Ron Settles, a a Long Beach State football player who apparently, who appeared to have been murdered in a jail cell in Signal Hill. I mean, that was the allegation. back then and uh, he had uh, represented a former black uh, uh, panther Geronimo Pratt yeah wow um, so uh, so Johnny Cochran was was certainly uh, a lawyer you know to admire um, and, and there were others you know in LA I mean LA has a very very rich history in terms of good good lawyers and good lawyering and and for those of us who practice criminal law you know uh, if you practice long enough you're gonna you're gonna see some of the very best the nation has to offer is it a um, fraternity like of the criminal attorney um, community let's say is that is that fair well it is there is a community there is a community now you know as far as a fraternity I imagine that there's a fraternity of, you know, rich <laughs> lawyers, <laughs> criminal yeah, lawyers. Yeah, See, I'm not, I'm, yeah. but I'm not one of them. I'm, a, I'm, I'm broke. Right. You know, right. Uh, I'm a broke criminal five, lawyer. Five kids will do that to you. <laughs> yeah, want it? Want love it? the kids. Love the kids. Yeah. yeah, no. yeah. But uh, okay, okay. So moving on. Seven years later, 1995, the O.J. Simpson trial. Got to talk about that. I want to know how you got involved. Um, my understanding is at first you were involved in the prosecution of Al Cowlings. Is, is that correct? Or, or, or walk, well, walk me I mean, through that. Yeah, give me this. I mean, I'm, I'm just doing an investigation to see where the Bronco's going. Right. So I had lots of experience in the grand jury. So I'm at the grand jury, um, you know, trying to figure out where the Bronco was, was headed. Wow, okay. So then... What were the steps of your involvement? Initially, you weren't, let's say, a main figure in the case, right? Not at Is all. Is that fair? That's okay. ab- absolutely fair. I was, uh, I was going to, um, I was going to run the back office. I was going to run the clerks, the investigators. Um, I was going to lead the support team. Yeah, that was my assignment initially, and and you know, see where the Bronco was going. But. Now, and sorry to interrupt, but your feelings don't matter when it comes to your job. But what? In retrospect, were your feelings when you're like, whoa? Because, I mean, even a punk kid, anybody in L.A. knew O.J. Simpson, and they saw the chase and blah, blah, blah during, during the NBA mm-hmm. finals, all this mm-hmm. stuff. I mean, it was high profile from the, the second it happened. Right, what right. were your feelings even getting the call to be involved on the, I don't want to say periphery because you really were involved, but what did it feel like being like, okay, I, I'm in this thing? Like, well, well, no, because I'm, you know, I'm in the back room. I'm not ever going to show my face in the courtroom. Okay, I am okay. never going to prepare a witness. I am, you know, I'm never going to present a piece of evidence. Now, my job is to manage the support staff for that case, and you know, and it's a management issue. You know, for me, it's an opportunity to prove what I can do as an organizer, uh, as a manager. Okay. And and uh, and that was fine. That was fine. Only problem is I'd already been assigned to the Inglewood uh, DA's office to be the deputy in charge there, and my my transfer was being held up. And but okay, you know, um, because what I was doing was sort of what I had done before. Because you know, my unit, uh, even before O.J. Simpson, is the unit that. Uh, prosecuted the officers in Simi Valley. 
Ooh. so so I got a, you know I've got a little experience in you know and and yeah. this this type of uh, gutter warfare. Oh man, you know. So yeah, I let's back up a little. So you were involved in that as well, huh? Well, I'm not in the courtroom again. Okay. Okay. I'm okay. not in the courtroom again. Yeah. You know, I'm I'm, you know, I I'm behind the scenes. My contribution to that trial is minimal. Um, probably my biggest contribution to the Rodney King trial is just my observations. Right. Because right. you know, uh, when you spend enough time in a courtroom, yeah, you can kind of see where things are headed and where things are going. You know. And you had that indication, you had that kind of feel? Yeah, you know, I'm looking at the Rodney King trial, and I'm in Simi Valley, and, uh, you, know, uh, you know, my good friend, uh, you know, Terry White's prosecuting that case with another good friend, Alan Yokelson, two, two fine lawyers, two fine prosecutors. But um, even then, we'd never seen a situation like this. Especially because this is right when media was really turning into media. I mean, cable news was finally ubiquitous in everybody's home. Yeah. And these court cases, it's yeah. so mm. reflective of Los Angeles and Hollywood right. and all this kind of right, stuff. Right, right. Oh, you know, and, ca and cable news oh, is, is in its man. infancy. Court TV's Ooh. just getting off the ground. And, and, and the, the media attention is unprecedented, even for that case. And of course, this case was hugely important, yeah. you know. To, to to the LA community as a whole, and you know, so I'm you know I'm sitting here because I got a little, you know, I got a little uh, juice, you know, a little experience in the office. I'm you know sitting there in a room with, you know, with management, and you know, and we're watching the trial, and I'm watching the trial in my office, and you know, and and you know, and when the jury finally went out, and and you know, folks were saying what they expected to happen. Yeah, I said, well. When they asked me, I said, well, um, you'd be lucky to get two of them, but you probably won't get that. And people were like, what? What? Because, you know, I learned yeah. um, that uh, it's not just the evidence. It's timing. It's location. It's issue-driven. It's community and public sentiment. And it's history. You know, where are we at this moment in history when this huge case is being tried and prosecuted? All of these things matter. Of course. And, and, and the defendants, who they, they are, or the defendant, who he is, all of this, all of this matters. And, and, and how they impact the culture matters. So um, I learned to look at a trial from a different perspective than I ever had before. Wow. Because I'm getting all this information. I'm hearing from the cops in my ear. I'm, I'm out in the community. I'm hearing from the community. You know, I'm, I, you know I've watched this video. I've, I've seen some of the interviews and read some of the transcripts. And, and I knew the defense lawyers yeah. for the officers in Rodney King because I had tried a case against that same group of defense lawyers and I had lost. And it was a case that's referred to as 39th and Dalton. Okay. And this is where uh, police officers around 1988 or 87 served a search warrant, 50, 60 cops on a, on a, on a four-unit apartment building and destroyed it to teach the occupants a, a lesson. And I prosecuted those officers. And I, I got one conviction you know, out of four, but 
you know, I tried that case against three of the defense attorneys that uh, defended the officers in, in the Rodney King trial. So, you know, so I, I have this experience, and you know, and I have this kind this kind of knowledge that perhaps nobody else, yeah, you know, in yeah, the room in that room in the DA's office had. So, um, you know, and you, um, and what happened happened. Yeah, and I expected it, it to happen. Right. Now, on the day of the Rodney King verdict, I'm in the grand jury. And uh, and I'm, uh, I'm examining a, a uh, reluctant uh, person who wished they weren't there. <laughs> and so I'm, you know, having fun tearing up this guy. And, and I hear the deputies in the ante room going, you know, whooping, whooping it up. And I'm like, what? And, and the grand jury foreman goes out and comes back and... And I know what it means because I, I knew the jury was out. He says uh, the cops and the officers in, in Simi Valley have been found not guilty. Whoop. So, uh, you know, and I said to the grand jury, I said, well, we should adjourn right now. And uh, Mr. Fourperson, you should suggest to the grand jurors that they proceed home immediately. Take the freeway if they can. If they have to drive wow. south or through downtown, they should do it on the freeway because there is going to be civil unrest. And of course, we know what happened. And you knew that at the time, huh? Yeah, I knew it at the time because I lived and breathed the LA community. Wow! You know, this is this is my home, right. and um, you know, and uh, I understood what the impact of a not guilty verdict in that case would be. Oh man! Because if you lived in LA and if you were black. And you experienced experienced the LAPD when Daryl Gates was the police chief. Um, and if you had a television and you watched what happened, you know it was pretty clear and pretty easy to come to certain conclusions. Yeah. Especially as to who's a, who's at fault, who's wrong, who's right, and who committed a crime. And so you take all of that that life experience living here. Um, your your relationship and interactions with the LAPD, and you see this video and these not guilty verdicts. Oh, man. Um, I can understand why people were outraged. Wow, man, oh man. Okay, so so now coming off of that, how many years later? So was that trial? I know that happened 92. in ninety two. Yeah. Was the trial in ninety two as well? I think well? so. Yeah. Okay, so three years later, now you're on the OJ case. How did you get? the role where you were a prominent figure what happened where you became co-prosecutor in that case well, and then what were what did that feel like and well you know the lead prosecutor was a guy named bill hodgman who was a very nice man and excellent prosecutor he had uh, during jury selection he had a, a physical a medical event and he was no longer available and you know and uh you know i had been a very successful prosecutor as well yeah and you know and they asked me to do it and I didn't want to do it but you know eventually I did it and uh, you know it's kind of crazy because you know when I go on uh, to the courtroom side of the OJ Simpson case the, the first 12 jurors are already selected and the case has already been split up in terms of already assigned to who's going to do what yeah but you know so I come in and I come in very late and um, um, you know and I assume you know responsibility for some things 
and for some witnesses. And uh, I do my job. You know, I've always believed, uh, uh, you know, in the rule of law. The law applies to everybody equally. Yeah. Not unequally, but equally. And 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 I believe in fairness. And um, and at the time, uh, and, and I continue to be. I was a victim's advocate. You know, I mean, I was part of a group that ran a nonprofit in the basement of a church at Ninety uh, Second and Budlong in, in Los Angeles for many, many years, and we provided therapy and burial assistance and just general hold handing and empathy to the mothers yeah. uh, who lost their children to violence, and gang violence, and gun violence in South Central Los Angeles, and so. Um, I believed very much in the rights of victims, and, um, and when I read the autopsy reports and saw what happened to Ron and Nicole, how could I not defend them right. or uh, and, and ensure in some way that they received the justice that they were supposed to receive? Now, you received scrutiny, pressure, coverage that is probably unprecedented at that point. I mean, from a media perspective, from um, just the, the heat of the days and the nights and the, the news weeks and the Time magazines and CNN, was there additional pressure from the black community or was there backlash as a prosecutor of O.J. Simpson at the time? Well, there was backlash and, um, you know, Everybody, black people, white people, Latino people, everybody seemed to have an opinion. <laughs> that is true. And uh, yeah. you know about the case, and 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 I I appreciate that and I respect that. You know the thing about having an opinion about cases um, that you have never actually participated in the preparation for or read the investigation. You know, folks are operating on sound bites and, you know, what they hear and, and what the word on the street is and a 30-second, you know, update on television. Um, but, you know, everybody had an opinion about it. Now, I was in an, an unusual position. I was in a, a position nobody had ever really seen before. I was a black prosecutor in the trial of the century. And... The trial um, of the century. Wow, yeah, it was yeah. absolutely was. Yeah, and so you know, it's, you know, I'm not in. I'm I'm sitting in a chair that's not familiar. You know, usually the person sitting in that chair is of another color, and um, and I, you know, and I understand that. Um, wow. You know, that chair represents different things. That pr the prosecutor's chair represents different things to different communities and to different people, and um, you know. Becoming a prosecutor, becoming a prosecutor in, in a naive sort of way, without fully appreciating, you know, what I joined, what exactly it entailed. I, I certainly came to love it and, and to respect it, but I also came to understand the importance of it. You know, if you want justice, number one, you got to participate. You got to be in it, and and if you want justice for an entire group of people, you have to have people within the system. Because every day, policy is being made and shaped 
And if you want to impact or affect that policy, you have to have somebody in the room. You know, and so I was I was able to be in the room, and um, you know, and give a voice. Yeah, yeah. You know, just like as I sat there and said, "Well, you'll be lucky to get two of these officers in Simi Valley if if you get that." You know, that was a perspective nobody appreciated at the time. Yeah. But obviously, you know, I was right. Right. Um, right. So, you know, sitting in that chair as a prosecutor with prosecutorial discretion, yeah. I can decide, you know, whether to dismiss a case oh, or go forward to trial. I can offer a plea bargain of 50 years or I can offer a plea bargain in no years. I can consider things beyond a police report. You know, I can take into consideration the individual characteristics of the defendant. I can see his mother in the courtroom. And I can take that into consideration. Wow. So, you know, it's important to have a prosecutor in the room uh, who is sensitive yeah. and who has some life experience. Uh, I, you know, I, uh, you know, I got family up in San Quentin. You know, always have. Right. Uh, right. So, you know, so I, I know a little bit about this, and um, and so, you know, I brought that with me into the DA's office. Not everybody understood it at the time, but I think there's a greater appreciation for it today. How did you withstand, listen, I mean, again, and I remember I was finally, you know, coming of age and paying attention. This is where I'm, you know, really being like, oh, news and current events are actually a big deal and affect my life. And obviously this in Los Angeles with a sensational aspect to it as well. But man, you're, you're a county, a district attorney, prosecutor, and now you're center stage. Cover of Newsweek. Every day you're on the news. Every day you're dealing with whether it's fallout or feedback or, or just all of these narratives and this noise. And now simultaneously, your brother was in a tough state as well, right? This right, is when right. he was kind of past. Yeah, he was declining. He was struggling. How are you, as a human being, forget the case for a second, as a human being, how are you dealing with this pressure? How are you dealing with the day-to-day? The -day? Because, again, even just a, a normal person getting a news article, you know, oh, I'm so proud, or I'm showing my friends, or, or you get recognized and it's a different experience and, and your life kind of changes a little bit. Yours overnight, you became Chris Darden. I, I mean, to you know, 30 years later, people know you and know the name and know the relation to the case. While this is happening, how are you dealing with this, especially with what's going on with your family and trying to raise an actual, your family? Well, you know what? Um, you know, I never went in the, into the law to get rich or to get famous. And, um, and it's a little jarring, yeah. you know, because I, I've been seeing those TV trucks out in the, you know in the back parking lot behind the courthouse and uh. and I get on the elevator and there'd be somebody with a camera you know going up or going down or whatever but let me tell you the day you walk in and all of a sudden all those cameras are on you oh. um, you know it's enough to make a brother stutter so um, you know so that right there is like a shock um, as a prosecutor you don't really want the whole world to know what you look like or who you are no. or where no. you live or shop 
and uh, or take step class as I did. Um, you know. <laughs> You don't want all of that known, um, you know, because it's a security issue. Yes. But now all of a sudden, these cameras are there and people are seeing you and people now, you know, are forming an opinion about you. And for us, and I I would say this about Marsha too, um, you know, it's not something we were prepared for and it's not something that we asked for. But, you know, all of a sudden, there's nothing else on television but us. No. So from ESPN to CNN and everything in between, man. I mean, all day, man. Entertainment, well, you know, sports, news, everywhere. you call it. It checked every single box. Every single box. Celebrity, race, right. justice. One of the first cases with forensic DNA. Oh, my God. Um, you, know, um, you know, just all kinds of, uh, 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 social uh, boxes. To, and cultural boxes and political boxes and legal boxes you know you, you're checking you're just checking away you know uh, you know it's it's uh, you know and, and then you look at the history and you look at the timing of it all two years after the riots in the place is oh, Los man. Angeles and you know and all of this stuff and then you have you turn lawyers into celebrities and now you know the cast you're looking at the cast, you know, there's this dorky guy from Harvard and, you know, and there's, um, you know, um, you know, uh, Johnny and, and Barry Sheck and Peter Newfell from New York and, and, you know, I had never been to New York. The dream team. Uh, you're going against the dream team, right, at you know, a certain and, point. Yeah, you know, and, and, you know, and, you know, the most famous lawyers criminal lawyers in the, in the country so um you know the stage is set you know this is great drama and great television uh, for some people but for us you know it's like you know we're just trying to do our job i think i'm making a hundred thousand a year at this point yeah. i'm in my like 15th year as a lawyer and i'm making a hundred grand Mm-hmm. Right, that's big mm-hmm. money, man. That's big cheese. That's big cheese, baby. I, I, I'm making, you know, this money, and uh, you know, and I have all of these problems. These people are all in my business. Did you ever get any of the uh, threats or people outside of the case coming up to you? Was there any of that that sort of happened? Or well, we all got threats. You know, we getting bags and bags of mail every day, and, and, and you know. Yeah, mail. This is before before social media email, right? Yeah, there's there's mail. There are letters. uh, There are voicemails. uh, There are people outside with signs. You know, there are people, you know, once they figure out where you live, driving by your house, drove by my house, and they took my trash. Um, You know, there are all of these things that are, uh, you know, that are are going on. All of these distractions that are going on. And, and, you know, with all of that going on... um, become a little paranoid. Yeah, you become a lot afraid, and and becomes a huge distraction from what you're trying to do in the courtroom. Because it's hard to read when you're looking over your shoulder. Oh man! At the same time. Good quote on that. Okay, so fast forward. The jury comes back in the courtroom, hands the decision to to Judge Ito. My friend. What was your confidence level on a scale of 1 to 10 at that point? You had your experience of reading the courtroom, reading the jury, knowing all the factors, the community, the timing. 
What was your confidence level at the time that they walk in that O.J. Simpson would be convicted? I fully expected them to find him not guilty. Um, uh, you know, that was my you know real life, realistic um, expectation based on experience. Right. Um, and uh, you know, it was a little difficult hearing it, but I fully expected that to happen. And and look. You know, and I was, you know, uh, butthurt about, you know, some of it. Is that, is that a term a judicial officer should use, butthurt? Um, about it, you know, for a long time, you know, just because I, I wanted justice for the victims. And, and I understand, and let me tell you folks, I understand all the problems uh, with that case. You know, I've relived those days a thousand times Ooh. over. And... And not out of pain, um, but out of passion, and and out of curiosity. And what I was curious about was how they did it, because I wanted to be able to replicate that in my own career. So tactically, yeah, know, yeah. So I'm looking at it, you know, and I, you know, I mean, I've actually gone back and read transcripts, uh, witness statements, oh. and I looked at pictures. You know, I, I, I had uh, you know a copy of the file for many years, and I, you know, and I'm looking at this stuff, and you know, and on the surface we see what's on the surface. We see all of these things that happen. You know, misstep after misstep after misstep. I oh. get it, I get it. But as a lawyer, you know, I'm looking like you know, you know, how do we, how do, you, how do you do that? You know. Now, what's the plan here? What was the plan? How did it, you know, how, how was it executed? Um, you know, I'm looking at witnesses and examinations and, and this and that. I'm looking at all of that, and, I, and I'm learning from it. I'm learning from it. I think I'm a pretty damn good lawyer. Yeah, yeah trial of lawyer. course. Right. And, uh, and I'm fearless. I'm fearless. And uh, um, so... You proved it just getting through that, just being on the receiving end of that, again, intense scrutiny and to get through, I mean, and do, execute what you were able to do. I mean, <laughs> decision is one thing, but. Yeah. I tell you, you know, the stress yeah. of being involved in that situation, in the case, the distractions outside, you know, you're concerned for your family because as people, as people are threatening me and making life difficult for me, they're making life difficult, you know, for my family, too, who are hundreds of miles away. And um, the stress of it all and the length of the trial takes a toll on you physically, yes. mentally and physically. You know, I was pretty damn skinny when that trial uh, ended, number one. And I think I had... Four root canals during that trial. You know what I mean? Um, listen, you you know, your body is breaking down. Yes. Your body's yes. breaking down. Um, because you're spending all of these hours, all of this mental mental energy focusing on on this case. Now, what was what was it, a fourteen month trial or something like that? You know, people don't know, but uh, trial lawyers know. Man, if you're in trial for a month, yeah. If you're in a four-week trial, yeah. Man, that's exhausting oh. as hell. 
You know, yeah, you're going the marathon, yeah. the triad, the yeah. Iron Man triad. Yeah. Oh yeah, yeah, yeah. You you're doing the Iron Man thing, and you know, I mean, to be that mentally focused, to expend that much mental energy for that long of a period of time, is is taxing. You know, and uh, I tell you, when I when I look like I'm gonna uh, try a law case, you know, I make changes. You know, I make changes in my diet. Yeah, you know, and now it's because no self self care, no. mental health are so much yeah, more sure, prominent. Back sure. then, it was just sort of creeping into the yeah the public sure. sentiment. You know, you know, you, you change your diet. You know, you cut back on cocktails. You, you know, you uh, uh, you know, you got to get your sleep. Yeah, you, know, you, you have to be steps. physically. You got to be physically prepared for it. You know, I I thought I was going to be in a long trial. You know, and. You know, I'm not nearly as fat today as I was 12 months ago, bro. Good job, bro. Good job. <laughs> you know, I'm at, I'm at a fighting weight right now. Um, but, you know, you have to be physically and mentally fit to do that stuff. So how did you decompress? So the trial's over, the disappointment. I mean, look, I'm sure decades later you're still doing But what do you even do to decompress? After the trial ends, w- w- what does Chris Darden go, go do? How do you get back to your normal self. How do you get your life back, I guess, after that point? Well, you know, after that point, um, life has now completely changed. Yeah, because now you're Chris Darden. I mean, you're always Chris Darden, but now you're Chris Darden, yeah. Yeah, and my life, you know, evolved around my family and it evolved around the DA's office. I was two things. I was a Darden and I was a deputy district attorney. And, you know, and, and mixed in that, I was a dad. Um, and I was a son, but, um, you know, so much of my life evolved around all of that. And now I'm no longer a DA. Um, now I'm Christopher Darden. I don't have the security, uh, um, that I had, you know, the, the, the physical security that I had when I was a prosecutor. I'm kind of, you know, out in the world, a babe in the woods. Yeah. Really. And now I've got this celebrity and. Um, and I don't, you know, and I don't know how to, how to navigate that. You know, I wasn't some, some guy, you know, going to act to acting school, hoping to get a. No, there's no playbook for, for an attorney, for a, for a prosecutor becoming celebrity. Yeah. Right. So, you know, I, so I screwed all of that up (laughs) and, uh, and, you know, I, I screwed all of that up and but you know, the way I got back, I think to me was once I started teaching law. Yeah, at Southwestern Law School, that that provided me some uh, stability, uh, and then I, I met my wife, oh. uh, Marcia, not Marcia, Marcia, M A R C I A. Right, right. She's from Virginia, and it's Marcia. And Where'd you guys you, meet? And if you call her Marcia, she you might get punched in the face. <laughs> um, we met. Well, you know, I got to tell her version because if I tell my version, I get in trouble. Happy wife, but, happy life. Yeah, Best advice I ever received, by the right. way. Right, but <laughs> but yes, and uh, to pick it up where uh, um, uh, Marcia starts, uh, I I visited a, a news station. Uh, um, I think it was KTVU in Oakland, uh, and uh, for the morning show, and uh, I signed a book for her. And um, as I was leaving after the morning show, the receptionist ran out, Mister Darden, Mister Darden, I have something for you. I stopped. I'm like, what? And she gave me an envelope. And it was a message from my future wife. Go on. And, uh, 
and uh, and we and I called her, and uh, she had worked. She was working for the station. Yeah, she was. Okay. Uh, she was working for the station. She was the CFO or something like that. Yeah, and uh, um, so yeah, so that's that's how I met my wife, according to my wife. According to your wife, I still want to know your story, but maybe maybe that. Uh, let me tell you something. She made certain promises in that message. Yeah. Which I and I still have the message yes, today, yes. and uh, you know, and, and these, and these promises, yeah. these promises form the terms of a contract. <laughs> and uh, Marcia, you are in breach of this contract on a couple of points. I won't get into it here. Okay, but okay. Uh, but you know, she's she's in breach. You know, there's substantial performance on her part. You know, but you know, on a couple of areas, there's a breach, man. How long? How long have you guys been married now? We've been married for 26 years. That's a good. That's you know, a good run. That's yeah, a good well, run. Well, let me tell you. You know, we struggle through some things. Have to. Um, you know, we it. struggle through uh, separations. We struggled. Uh, um, you know, as, as a as a, a loving couple, and we struggled as parents. It's hard, and man. We, um, and you know, and uh, through it all, through it all, and Lord knows we were tested. We've been tested. And you know, and at the end of the day, we came out of this together. Yeah. So, I talk to people, and I say, and they say, well, why should you? We sh why should we vote for you, Darden? Well, you know, I have life experience. You know, I I I know the joys of love, and I know the pain. You right? Uh, you know, joy and pain. Uh, you know, I know Rob all Bates. about it. Yeah. Rob Bates. <laughs> <laughs> Frankie Beverly. <laughs>
First of all, before I get into the, the nuance, what is seat 130? I, I just, just for my curiosity, what does that even mean? How many seats are like? What, what is that even? Well, you know, there are hundreds of, 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 of Superior Court judges in Los okay. Angeles County, and each one uh, has a designated seat. But it doesn't mean that's a specific courthouse, though, Correct. right? Correct. Now, the judge sitting in seat 130 right now is out in the Antelope Valley. Ooh. Okay, in Lancaster. Um, LA and, County though. Okay. And yep. this and this judge is a fine judge is going to uh, is is retiring. Okay. So that seat is open and available uh, to whoever can win it. Yeah. So I am running um, for his uh, his seat. Now, what made you want to run for judge? I wanted to be a judge for some years. Yeah. And, you know, after the Simpson That's why you were studying the playbook. Okay, you know what? Let me tell you. You know, well, you know what? If you're going to be a well-rounded lawyer, if you're going to yeah. really be a, a litigator and a trial lawyer, yeah, you, you need to study the judge. Okay, you need okay. to you need to know who your audience is, and you need to know who your referee is. You know, we, we've seen some of these uh, NFL calls, right? Uh, some of these bad calls, but you know, you need to you need to know your judge if you have something important. Uh, you know, in court and in front of a particular judge. But I was offered a judgeship by uh, Pete Wilson after the Simpson case, and I, I declined it. Wow. Why? And uh, I wasn't ready, um, you know, and I was still, you know, dealing with the, you know, the aftermath of, of the trial, and I just wasn't uh, in a good place. And so I've waited some years, and now I'm here. And now I'm here, and, and now I'm here in a place where I can offer myself my service, you know, again to the community because I've always been a community-oriented guy, you know, for years, you know, as a victim's advocate in South L.A., as a law professor, and, uh, you know, 16 years as a prosecutor. I've been teaching uh, at Santa Monica College for going on seven years. Oh, wow. And so... And that's after Southwestern, after yeah, being a professor yeah, Southwestern, yeah. right? Right, and I, and I continue to teach uh, criminal law and crime scene. Do you enjoy that? Investigation. Just a little yeah. sidebar. You yeah. enjoy teaching? I do enjoy teaching, and, and that's why I do it. And I, I enjoy uh, making an impression. Yeah. You know, when I teach classes, I, I always focus on two things. You know, in addition to science and the rules, I focus on um, ethics. And I remind my students all the time every day that behind that crime is a victim yeah and uh, and we have to understand and appreciate uh, what the victim is going through and what the victim lost or or, or, or has suffered that's good like you used the word earlier sensitivity absolutely. and that's absolutely important and imperative so let's go back to the judgeship though so what in this seat seat 130 or, or superior court judge what does that impact like or, or what are the responsibilities explain mm-hmm. to me because and we were talking off off the air previously i received my booklet i've been a voter since i was 18 and you know cert, obviously the high profile races i try to do my research mm-hmm. but i i remember and this is the truth when you see the judges i'm like how are they having people like me vote for judges i you can't even do research on a lot of these people it's interesting that it's an electable position, but how does that race kind of work? What is your seat? You're, you're not even going to be at a specific courthouse. It might not be at the one in Antelope Valley. Like, how do you explain that race? And how do you explain to people why they should vote for you? What is the impact? What is the impact you're looking to have, I guess? 
Well, well, number one, people should vote for me because they know me. Yes, absolutely. I am going to be the only name on that ballot that anybody recognizes, for good or bad. For good or bad. And, um, and certainly people over the years, many people you know, have an impression of me. Some people love Chris Darden. Some people like, yeah, you know, not so much. Um, but, you know, people know me and they know some of my history. Um, other people, you know, on the ballot, you can probably Google them and everybody running has a website. But, you know, you know websites are, are, are there and the information in those websites are there for self-promotion. Yes, indeed. So I don't know how much you really get. A lot of people, uh, you know, vote based on names, how they sound, how they look, or they vote based on um, um, profession. So if you're a deputy district attorney uh, today and you're running for judge, you know, it'll say, you know, Joe Blow, deputy district attorney. And some people will just will just vote for that. Yeah. Uh, for me. Sounds qualified. Yeah. Right? Yeah, yeah. Sure. Yeah. And, you know, and for me, my, you know, my descriptor on the ballot is attorney uh, slash professor. Um, you know, um, if, I, if it was a deputy district attorney, it might sound better. But, you know, I'm an attorney. And, Who and picks that descriptor, by the way? Well, you know, you're limited. You, I could say retired deputy district attorney, but they don't allow that. And I am a retired uh, deputy district attorney, um, but they don't allow that. You know, it is uh, the designation, the ballot designation is based on what you've done the past six months, I think. Wow. So, um, you know, I've, it's been some years since I was a deputy uh, DA. But, um, you know, you can Google me and you can see my <laughs> life. You can see my life, man. You know, I've been through it, and you know, and and you know, and I've you know. Pretty robust uh, Wikipedia here. Let, yeah, let's just let say my, my homework was not terribly <laughs> difficult on, on this one. Yeah. Well, you know what? You know, when you're you know living that celebrity lifestyle, and people don't know there there are lawyer groupies, and you know. <laughs> Hello. <laughs> so you know, I partied a little bit. And folks job. will remember I was you know a little, Deserve. Young, a little Deserve. younger, a little younger back. Come then. on, twenty nine inch waist. You know, twenty nine yeah. inch waist flexing. You know, and um, you know, one way to get over. A difficult time oh. in your life is to try to have a good time. Oh man! Yeah. So you know, I, I tried to have a good time, um, but you know, I'm very centered and focused on the law, yeah, and our community, and um, what happens to people who come into the court system. What are you going to do as judge? And I'm going to take the same question I asked you earlier in completely different circumstance, but what is this potentially going to be a springboard, springboard towards and do you have ambitions after? And I, I know it's a little bit of a loaded question because you're, oh, I'm going to do the best I can and seat 130 and all this kind of stuff. I know. No. Me? Yeah. Ambitious? Yeah. Do I strike you as being a, of having political ambitions of my own? Yeah. Um, you know, I really don't. Now, I've been running for judge for a few months, and it's just terrible. <laughs> okay? You know, you hear people sometimes say, you know, I really love campaigning. No. Really? No. I don't believe that because it is all-consuming, extremely stressful. And in a judicial race, you know, we're not polling the public. I, I don't know if I'm ahead a, a or behind. Such a weird I don't know if I'm yeah. winning or losing. 
you know, this race is a countywide race and judicial race budgets are, you know, some are $30,000, you know what I mean? Oh, and there's 6 million voters out there and people are voting from Malibu, oh. you know, to Pomona and, um, you know, to Lancaster, the, to Long Beach. And, you know, you know, it's, it's, this, it's this huge thing and it's just all so much uncertainty in it. It's like running or campaigning in a huge black hole. Um, you know, you, you, you don't even, you don't even know. But, you know, I've always felt that, um, you know, you have to kind of carve out a place, yeah. your own place. If you believe in justice, you have to get involved and you have to be present. And, and, and for me as a, as a prosecutor and hopefully uh, with, with your blessing as a, as a judge, I'm, I'm going to carve out this space in the system where people can come and get justice. And there are other, you know, courtrooms and other judges where you can, you know, you can get justice there too. But um, you can't get it everywhere. But I'm I'm gonna provide a place where you where you can get it, and justice for defendants. Yeah. Justice for the mentally ill who come before the court. Yeah. Yeah. Um, um, justice for victims. And uh, you know and and and, uh, and and treat everybody you know in a in a dignified and respectful way. How long is the term? The term is six years. Is there a uh, term limit? There's no term limit. Oh wow, that's interesting. Yeah, you can run and run again and run again every six years. Wow. Okay. Okay. Well, I, I absolutely wish you luck on the uh, uh, election. The ballots are going to be coming in the mail probably next week, right? Right. February five. Folks wow. will be getting their ballots in the mail, and uh, you know, and you know, and the, the uh, judicial elections are way in the back. Yeah, I remember. Ballot, I, those know. are the ones that I'm like. <laughs> right. So, you know, so I, so I need folks, you know, to look through that ballot, get to the back. Maybe go there first. Maybe go there before presidential issues, you know, Senate races. Maybe Seat council 130. Races, district one attorney races. Go straight to the judicial race and check Darden. Is this a primary for you as well? Yes. March 5th? So so even if you win the primary, you're still on the November ballot again. If, if I were to win 50... Yeah. Percent of the votes plus one. Yeah. Then I would be declared. I'd be declared the victor, and, and I would not have to go on to the November. Uh, and when would you start your tenure? Um, January 2025. Wow, that's cool. That's really cool. Although if I won, I could apply for an earlier appointment for the governor. But you know, um, you know. But the uh, I think he's got his own ambitions right now. You know. You know what? Yeah, yeah. The governor does have his own <laughs> yeah, ambitions, yeah. Uh, doesn't he? Um, you know, California is such a is such a great place. It yeah. really is unique and different from anywhere else in the country. Well said. Well said. And just last thing on the campaign, who's on your campaign team? I know your daughter Tiffany is out there holding the flag, but who else mm. is 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 it a family matter? Do you hire external people, campaign manager, all this kind of stuff? For yeah, yeah. You know, I, I have a campaign uh, uh, manager from LP Campaigns, uh, Crystal Litz. Wow. But you know, I you know I got you know, um, um, you know I've, I've got a backroom squad of, of uh, helpers, in, including my daughter Tiffany, my son Chris Jr., yeah. my wife Marcia, yeah. my uh, 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 son Chase, uh, you know my friends uh, Brad and and Robin, 
And, uh, you know, so it's, it's just a little close-knit group of us. It's really been great for the family to come yeah. together. And, you know, and... and, and it's and, fun, uh, man. I mean, look, I, 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 I'm saying this from over here, but um, is... Uh, is there this is the last is there door knocking involved because you can't knock on six million doors you like cannot knock on you six can't million send doors. out flyer email it's such a weird time where where how are you even campaigning obviously you're showing up on mm -hmm. in a minute with Evan love and things like that but press appearances is you doing handshakes kissing babies I, you know, I will I will go anywhere yeah. and, and talk to anyone yeah um no matter what their politics are, yeah. number one. Uh, you know, uh, we have to, uh, you know, engage in some kind of digital uh, marketing Ooh. campaign. Ooh. And you're right, we can't talk to six million people, oh. can't shake enough hands or, or knock on uh, enough doors. You know, I've been endorsed by the LA County Federation of Labor Good. and they have hundreds of thousands of members. And so I'm, you know, I'm getting support you know, from the unions, yeah, um, right. you know, and, uh, and I'm gonna spend my own money yeah. Um, don't have a lot of it, right. but I'm going to spend my own money because I think it's important. It is and, important, and uh, you know, you know, we're we're you know, we're, we're a grassroots little uh, you know judicial campaign, and uh, you know we're going to get the job done for 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 all of you, um, for this county, for this community. That's awesome, and I'll tell you what, right here, you have the endorsement of In a Minute with Evan Lovett. Um, Thank you. I do appreciate you. Thank but you. before we go, before we go, I want to talk about L.A. in conclusion. Give me your relationship with the city today. You articulated so beautifully. I mean, the diversity and the culture and the things that we all love about Los Angeles, which, again, it's funny because your story of when you came here in uh, 1980 is the same as my my first, let's say, conscious memory of this was in junior high, my homeroom in seventh grade. Mm -hmm. And I, I didn't know it at the time, but in retrospect, where, you know, we got Jewish people, Latino people. I had an Egyptian person. I had somebody from Kenya where I'm like in ret Armenian. And you're like, wait a minute, this is all. And again, I, I actually went to junior high in North. I went to Holmes Junior High. Mm -hmm. So like smack dab middle of the valley. But in retrospect, you're like, wait a minute. And this is normal. This is Los Angeles. And that's what makes it so special. But you articulated beautifully. What's your relationship with the city like today? I have a great relationship with the with the city today. You know, I was down at the Martin Luther King Day Parade and spent the day in Lamert Park, yes. you know, with my little table out there, you know, vote for Chris Darden Good. for judge. Good. And, you know, I always tell people, you know, I, I've walked these hallways and these courthouses and I've walked these streets and there was never a time when I didn't go out and eat, <laughs> okay? And go, and go to the market and get my fish fried and, uh, you know, and buy a bean pie and, uh, you know, and, and, and go to the movies and, and, and just experience, you know, uh, L.A. You know, I took, I, I took my kids down to uh, uh, Lou Tokyo a little while back and, you know, and, and we had dinner and, you know, and they were just like, you know, I mean, I had taken them when they were kids, but it's been a long time and they, and they were just loving it and, you know, I mean, you gotta love the people yeah. in LA. This this ain't New York, you know. This Why ain't New York, and uh, you know, and everywhere I go, you know, people treat me in a loving way. Um, and people say, "Darden, I don't agree with you on such and such," but you know, they shake my hand. Yeah, you know, 
and and we can sit and we can talk and uh, and uh, you know and I love that I love that about LA I never I never feel alone uh, or lonely in LA what a great way to put it and it's funny because I talked to say there's somebody in my neighborhood uh, Kenny Cooper he, he's an actor just he, he said hey and we were talking one day and it this is something that's resonated with me where he was a transplant. I forget where he said he was from. I want to say Baltimore. Don't quote me on that. But he was like, you know, a little bit LA's tough to kind of come into. But he says, your people are here. You just got to find them. And yeah. once you find them, everything opens up and you see that Los Angeles, if you love Los Angeles, I love Los Angeles. Dude, it doesn't matter who you are, what you're about. It doesn't matter. Like, it doesn't matter. Look, you can, you can love the Lakers and you can still love the 49ers. Thank you. You know what I'm, I'm saying? Raiders. You, <laughs> I grew up Raiders, well, dude. Well, you, know, hey, you know, I watched the 70s, 1970s uh, uh, Raiders, too. Ooh. You know, I love the Raiders, you know. Yeah. I love the Raiders more than the Chargers. Please don't be mad at me about that. But I you know what? The you city can, hasn't yet embraced the Chargers. I'm going to just say <laughs> it. I'm going to just put it out there, but go on. But, go you know, you can, you, can, you can bring the best of you, Yeah. you know, here. And, and you know, and, and I, I always feel like L.A. is a city of opportunity. Yeah. You know, you can make it. And if you can make it in L.A., you can make it in New York. But you can if you can make it in L.A., you can make it anywhere. I always say L.A. is the city of the modern American dream. There's so many Los Angeles American dream stories. Not not to go Don King on it, but that's one of my big things, yeah, man, yeah. is this city has so many stories of immigrants, migrants or natives that have made it. Somewhere. So the last thing. I always close out in a minute with Evan Lovett with one thing to do in L.A. this week. Let's say Christopher Darden and Marcia have a weekend by yourselves and you're like, we're going to do a staycation or we're going to see the city. What are your what is your one thing to do in Los Angeles this week? The one thing to do in Los Angeles this week. And it could be well, multiple I, things, but it doesn't yeah, literally yeah, need yeah, to be one thing. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Well, you know what? Um, you know, I like to take a walk, a, a walk on the beach on Santa Monica Pier. Yeah. I like to go by Wee Jammin, and I've been thinking about that. And I told Marcia this morning, wow. this weekend, we're going to go by Wee Jammin over on Pico, right? And, you know, and get some Jamaican pies, you know, wow. a little jerk chicken. Okay. Um, and, uh, you know, and, and, and just, just, just hanging out with friends, yeah. you know? I mean, and that's one of the things we've always done. You know, we've always opened up the backyard. And uh, and Man. folks have you know and folks have come over and kids have come over, and um, but you know we love to go to restaurants. Yeah. Um, you know, L.A. Uh, you know L.A. cuisine. You know the L.A. restaurant scene is just uh, just exceptional. Yes, indeed. And uh, you know, and of course, you know, of course, we love our sports teams. Yeah. So you know, we can get in a game. I think I posted on Facebook the other day old picture of us, the whole family, at, you know, at the Dodgers game. Um, you know, love to watch the Dodgers. You know, we love the Lakers. Uh, you know, we'll go right, you know, down there. Uh, we'll go downtown, you know, on a game night with no tickets. Yes. Okay? <laughs> yeah. And just, you know, have dinner and have a couple of drinks and just be in the In the atmosphere. It. That's it. LA. That's exactly LA. it. You know, take an Uber. We take an Uber. So, there's, you know, no need to drive. Yeah. And, you know, and just, and just enjoy ourselves. Hold hands. Yeah. Can you imagine hands. Christopher Darden holding hands with a woman? You know what? She though, lets me, she lets me hold her hand, man. Yeah. After 26 years, she still lets me hold her hand. That's a beautiful thing, <laughs> man. That is a beautiful thing. Where can we find out about the Christopher Darden campaign? 
Well, you go. You can go on the internet, Christopher Darden, F-O-R, Judge, Christopher Darden for Judge.com. You can find me on Facebook, you know, just look up Christopher Darden. You can find me on Instagram. Good. You can, and there are ways to donate to this campaign because Daddy only has- That's important. Daddy only How has do so we much do that? money. How do know? we do that? Well, if you go to my website, uh, you know, there's a QR code and it'll show you how you can- It was Christopher Darden for Judge, yes. F-O-R, Judge, Christopher yes. Darden for Judge. That's important. Facebook, Instagram, I'm going to be putting the links up. But I, I got to say, thank you again, Christopher Darden, for appearing live in the I Am Studios for this episode of In a Minute with Evan Lovett. What a fascinating story. What an awesome guy. I'm very appreciative of your candid outlook, your transparency, the stories, and honestly, just spending time here. Did you know I had such a huge sense of humor? Did you know that? You know what's funny is your daughter <laughs> Tiffany. Your daughter <laughs> Tiffany gave you the heads up, so I was ready. I was ready. Were you ready? Because you know people think, well, you know, he's very stoic, and which I guess well, you is had a way, to be in the public. You had yeah, to be. you know, I guess it's a way a judge has to, you know, has to be, and, you know, and I'm, and I, you know, and, and I want to be mean. I, I want to be me in every aspect of my life, and you know, and and I'm not saying you might walk into court and I may call your case and say, "What's up?" But. <laughs> 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 what it is, yeah. what it is, but you know what, um, you know, I am me and shaped and influenced by so much history and so many tragedies, but so many good things, yeah. so many beautiful things, and um, you know, I love life. I, I, I love this city, this county, this community, and um, you know, I, I'm living a blessed life, and and uh, being able to run, yeah. You know, in America, yeah, to do this, oh man, you know, what an awesome, awesome run it's been. What an inspirational story. And I'll tell you this, let me tell you this, as, as Evan Lovett is me, genuine authenticity is what people want in 2024. I mean, for all the, the ills maybe of the internet and social media, I feel that people have become more sophisticated and nuanced as far as figuring out when people are BSing and when people are authentic and sitting here with Christopher Darden, I, I knew a little maybe what to expect. I knew the background, I do my homework, but this is a genuine person with a positive spirit and a great outlook. And I think that that's the most important thing that people are looking for now. So, I mean, look, do your own research, but I, I gotta tell you, Christopher Darden for judge, again, I wanna reiterate, has my endorsement. This was so fun. Send me a DM, comment. You know I'm going to respond. I'll let you know how you can reach out to the Darden campaign. Let me know what you think about the candidacy for his judge, for his candidacy as a judge on the LA Superior Court bench. And if you like the episode, please give me that five-star review. If you listen on Apple, Spotify, or the Odyssey app, please, please leave that review. It's important for the continued exposure and organic growth appreciate this. I appreciate everybody listening and I thank you very much. And I thank you again to Christopher Darden. This was a really, really good time. And to everybody, I wish you a fantastic week ahead. Any last words, Mr. Darden? Peace. Peace. <laughs> Peace out. <laughs> All right, y'all. It's been a minute.